This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. In the first months of 1999, there was a cautious optimism in Juarez that authorities were close to solving the string of serial murders that had claimed the lives of about 200 women since 1993. The previous year, voters in Chihuahua elected pre-candidate Patricio Martinez as the state's new governor. During his campaign, Martinez said that he could stop the bloodshed in Chihuahua in one month. After assuming office in October, he began taking steps that would hopefully end the wave of serial murders that had terrorized Juarez. Governor Martinez announced that Arturo Gonzalez Rascón would take over as the state's attorney general, and Rascón tapped Sully Ponce to lead Chihuahua's special task force for the investigation of crimes against women. The special prosecutor's post had undergone a rapid turnover in leadership since it was created less than a year earlier. And Ponce moved quickly to bolster the task force's investigative capabilities. In March, the new administration invited four profilers from the Behavioral Analysis Unit at the FBI to consult with state law enforcement in the ongoing serial murders investigation. Officials were hopeful that the FBI's visit would be a turning point in the case. Journalist Anne-Marie Mackler quoted Ponce as stating, it is now possible to do this right. To make any more mistakes would be unjust to the families of the victims and the society in general. El Paso Times reported Diana Washington Valdez. Well, the motivation of Governor Martinez was the same motivation that Governor Barrio had. He wanted to be the one who put an end to these murders, who solved them once and for all. So he reached out uh, to the FBI, but uh, the FBI profilers came, and uh, pretty much uh, they operated the same way that Ressler did. They asked to see the case files. They wanted to see what they had gathered up to then, the Mexican police. And uh, they were presented, I believe, with 70 case files, and they poured through them. Based on their analysis, the FBI profilers 
concluded it was unlikely that Abdel-Latif Sharif Sharif, the alleged Juarez Reaper, was behind the serial killings, either as the sole perpetrator or the intellectual author of a conspiracy to kill with a gang known as Los Rebeldes. The profilers told authorities in Chihuahua that in all likelihood, most of the murders were unrelated. According to journalist Teresa Rodriguez, Chihuahua officials rejected this conclusion as not fitting with the established theory of the case. El Diario de Juárez and El Paso Time reported Lorena Figueroa. I think the common denominator for everyone is that government officials, and that's like police or investigators, gave them hope. Uh, oh, yes, we have a lead. Oh, yes, uh, we have something. But at the end, they didn't have anything. So um, I guess that most, most of the family members of those girls were misled into believing that, oh, we're going to find my daughter, my mother, my sister, one way or the other, dead or alive. Of course, it hasn't gotten any better during the years, and we're talking about over 20 years now, and it's kind of the same. Girls keep disappearing. This is episode five of The Red Note, The Usual Suspects. My name is Lydia Cacho. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In March of 1999, a 13-year-old girl named Nancy Villalba was kidnapped along a deserted stretch of highway during her bus ride to the Maquiladora, where she worked. As an activist in Juarez during the late 90s, Vicky Caraveo tried to warn young workers about the dangers they might face alone on these Maquiladora buses. 
We would be around the maquiladoras handing out on the buses. Be very careful, girls. Never stay two more hours after your shift. If they tell you we need to pump fuel, no, no, because... This was exactly what happened to Nancy Villalba, her bus driver. Said, listen, I have to pump gas, but I'll drop you in front of your house. And when she realized it, she was already where she shouldn't be. And the others got on the bus and did everything they did to her. Nancy Villalba was raped and strangled by her assailants, who left her to die in the desert. They picked up a piece of concrete and threw it at her. They think she's dead. Throw some grass and more concrete on top of her like trash. But Villalba survived and walked a half mile through the desert to a nearby village. And two days later, three, some kids were playing around and heard, Mommy, help me. What the hell? Who's talking? Mommy, help me. Holy virgin, please don't leave me. The kids went to get her moms and... Here's the sounds coming this way. We're here. Talk some more. What a beautiful thing that in that moment of despair and pain, she would call her mom. That she knew the mom would be there. By the time authorities brought Villalva to the hospital, she couldn't talk. Her tongue was this wide. Her eyes were a slit, just a slit. Her nose wasn't even visible. No teeth, tongue swollen from thirst, from despair. The little girl told police that a bus driver was responsible for the attack. A Washington Post story reported that weeks before, Sully Ponce had begun to observe that many of the disappeared and murdered women had been seen in the company of bus drivers before they went missing. Maybe the drivers had something to do with the crimes? Ponce sent detectives out to investigate the potential link. They spent weeks following leads with no results. Then, Police got a tip about a bus driver who had been arrested for assaulting his wife in the city of Gomez Palacio, about 500 miles south of the city. The woman told authorities that when she and her husband, Jesus Guardado Marquez, lived in Juarez, she sometimes saw him returning home carrying a bloody kitchen knife. Authorities in Gomez Palacio passed the information on to Ponce. Guardado Marquez, also known as El Tolteca, also known as the Jackal, also known as El Dracula, was arrested a few days later. Diana Washington Valdez. I think I found it interesting also that initially uh, Tolteca was identified as Dracula. That was his initial nickname. 
given to him by the authorities, I guess maybe they figured that was too much and then it just became El Tolteca. After questioning, Guardado Marquez confessed to police that he, along with four other bus drivers, had conspired to murder 20 women over the previous two years. Sully Ponce announced that the five bus drivers who the press had christened Los Toltecas had been acting under the orders of Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif. Ponce claimed that Sharif had paid Los Toltecas to carry out the murders using patent royalties that he kept hidden in a secret U.S. bank account. To receive their money, the drivers had to bring Sharif panties or another article of clothing from the victims, along with a newspaper article with information about the murders. They were the same charges that authorities had made against Sharif and Los Rebeldes three years before. FBI officials looked for the secret bank accounts but found no record of their existence. In any case, Sharif's former employers owned the rights to all the patents he developed. There weren't any profits for him to be had. In spite of the questionable allegations, Los Toltecas were charged with all 20 of the murders that Guardado Marquez had claimed for the group. Diana Washington Valdez writes that Governor Martinez proudly announced, this nightmare is over. It's finished. I went into Cerezo to do a story something about uh, how prisoners lived. That's Lorena Figueroa. I was with this lawyer. After the interview, she told me, let's go, I want you to meet someone. She didn't tell me who, she didn't tell me why. She said, I want you to meet someone. In the 1990s, uh, well, Cerezo, it was like a park. That's the prison in Juarez. The prisoners were doing their own thing. And I remember walking and everyone wanted me to buy like the things that they were doing because that was the way that they sustained themselves. So I sat down uh, outside this, it looked like a little house, like a tiny house. And then this guy comes out of this little, I guess the cell, very tall, tanned, with very good manners, very good English, and he introduced himself. Hello, uh, my name is Latif Sharif Sharif. And I was at the, I, I mean, I was like in shock. Because um, um, this tall man, and he very nice, sit down, please. And he told me this, let me offer you uh, something to drink. What do you want me to bring you? A glass of um, orange juice or a glass of um, apple juice. And I'm like uh, nervous. And he said, you will like it. You will like it because I wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning 
every, every morning to do either my apple juice or my orange juice to sell here. And so I decided for the apple juice, which, by the way, was good. Diana Washington Valdez spoke with Sharif on several occasions before his trial. I was uh, surprised. He was a likable kind of guy. He's down to earth and he liked to kid around. And um, sometimes just chat about whatever, you know. And uh, that's what I noticed that he was, uh, yes, a party animal, but also a social animal because he did attract friends in the clubs. Uh, the ladies who danced with him liked him, you know. I wondered, well, does he even understand the big problem he's in and, and the possibility that he might not even ever be let go of jail? And he would just continue to call and say, you know, I'm innocent, Diana. I'm going to prove it. One of these days, I'm going to be free. I didn't do the murders. Officially, Sharif was accused of killing 19 women. Thanks to the work of his legal representative, Irene Blanco, by the spring of 1999, all but one of these charges had been dismissed the 1996 murder of Elizabeth Castro. The state's position, according to forensic criminologist Oscar Mines, connected Sharif to plenty of homicides. But there was just one file, and the victim's body in the file was never reliably identified. A DNA test was never done to establish whether or not the body they presented as Sharif's victim actually belonged to the person they claimed. An expert hired by Sharif's defense team concluded that the body authorities had identified as Castro's could not belong to the 17-year-old maquiladora worker. It was four inches too tall, the skin tones were different, and the facial features did not match. Irene Blanco says that authorities also couldn't explain why the body, found just four days after Castro went missing, was so severely decomposed, like remains that had been left in the desert for several weeks. Well, that's how Sharif's trial went, with irregularities. I talked a lot to one of the judges as well, not the one in the case. But I talked to him a lot, and he also told me, there's nothing to work with, there just isn't even if they want to. The father identified the girl's body, but it was already in such decomposition that the father identified her by the feet. By the feet. Excuse me, but tell me this. Why by the feet? Did she have... Was was she missing a toe? Was her left foot crooked? Shrunken? Did, did she have a big mole? So we asked for an elaboration of that. There was never any amplification. 
That's how it stayed. Really, I'm telling you, the magistrate would laugh. By the feet. Authorities were also having trouble settling on a story of how Sharif and the young Makila worker crossed paths, according to Diana Washington Valdez. Nobody ever saw him um, pick up one of these victims. Uh, these were, you know, people who went to the clubs for dancing and drinking at night. This was uh, Sharif's social life. And the, the men and women who surrounded him were in a, an environment that was very different from the ones that the victims came from, the ones that were being plucked off the streets and murdered. In Elizabeth Castro's case, Irene Blanco says the authorities alleged that Sharif he had supposedly met her in a bar and took her away. And then that he had gone to her house and, I mean, how did he know where she lived? And that he was hiding behind a car and he started to talk to her sister. Nothing was verifiable. If you went to see where they lived, they didn't live there. No, the sister wasn't there. They had moved to Zacatecas to work in the Maquila. Nobody lived with her. I knew it was going to be difficult to get a favorable sentence. We were never going to get it. I mean, there was the prosecutor and everybody against us, everybody against us. We took as much off as we could, but we knew it was an uphill run. Look, when the system falls on you like that, it's like you, you want to climb a marble wall with your hands wet. You can't. As much as you want to move forward, you feel the crush. So this judge I was talking to a lot told me, I'm going to give you some advice. Give up on the case. Otherwise, he's going to spend 20 years in there and they're never going to give it to you. They don't have the elements to find him guilty. It's not possible. There are no elements, so give up on it and go to trial, to sentence. I had no hope that he would go free. I said, Sharif, look, all we have to do here is get you sentence, get you an injunction. We get time and we'll see if with that time we can, we get the opportunity to ask for the DNA or whatever you want, so we can reopen that as evidence. That day, when he was going to be sentenced, I said, get ready. You're going to get a 20-year minimum. Go prepared. Don't crumble, because you have to keep fighting. And yes, I do think he got 22 or 23 years. After his appeal was revoked, Sharif was hastily transferred by authorities to the high-security state prison in Chihuahua City. There, the case was closed because a sentence was ruled. And then, in a completely arbitrary way, 
they moved him to another penitentiary. Just like that, like in the middle of the night, they took him to Chihuahua to a high-security prison. Why? Well, because it was the best way to isolate and control him. I mean, he, he already had a sentence at that point, and, and the writ of Amparo had not yet been filed. So, if he died in prison, he died convicted. Sharif's alleged conspirators, Los Rebeldes, who had been held without trial since their arrest in 1996, and Los Toltecas, the five bus drivers who were accused of 20 murders earlier that year, were also moved to the same Chihuahua prison the very same day. They put him in confinement. And then the prison psychiatrist called me and he told me that he had just quit because he didn't want to lend himself to the to the psychological torture that was being done to Sharif, besides the drugs that they were giving to him. He said, do something, do something. I'm out already. Blanco says that the transfer made it almost impossible for her to visit Sharif. When she made the 350-mile journey from Juarez to the Chihuahua Penitentiary, Officials tried to prevent Blanco from meeting with her client. I go to Chihuahua and it's so hard to get to see him. I say I'm his attorney and they say, but there's no authorization. I'm like, no, no, no. What do you mean no authorization? As an attorney, you can come in or they can bring the inmate. It's not like you have any restrictions. Finally, after a while, they told me, okay, you may come in. It's just that you have to undergo physical inspection. Oh, and then they sent a young girl. It's like the camera was there and she told me to take a step back so the camera wouldn't see me. She came out the door and told me, I have instructions to perform a vaginal inspection on you. It was hell. You don't know the condition. He was a man who... obsessive about personal hygiene. And when I saw him coming, I couldn't believe it. He was all urinated. I told him, what's wrong with you, Sharif? What's wrong with you? The eyes with fully dilated pupils. He started speaking Arabic in English. I didn't even know what he was speaking or what he was saying. But I told him, what did they do to you, Sharif? What did they do to you? And he would say, "It's no, it's, it's just that the man talks all night and he's telling me I'm guilty and I'm not guilty. They hoped that by taking him to Chihuahua, it was going to be 
conducive to something happening, like, like him committing suicide. I swore, really, that the next call would be to tell me he hanged himself in the cell. When I got out of jail, I called a meeting with human rights and the press. I told them the conditions I'd found Sharif in. That's what saved him. And so then they called to my sister's house saying they wanted to talk to me. And they said they were talking from human rights right before I was going to the press conference. And they were leaving messages to me with her, letting me know that I should cancel the press conference. And of course I was with my sister and I said, no, no. And I did go to the press conference and there I saw them and they said, cancel it, cancel the press conference. Tell them you have nothing to say. I do have a lot to say and I can't stay quiet. Blanco told the press about the conditions in which Sharif was being held in Chihuahua. And she told them about the death threats she began receiving on her answering machine. Look, I was always under threats. They called me and they told me to back off, that I was going to regret it, that they already knew who my children were. Of course, all this was with cursing, insults, and so on. I always said, their bark is worse than their bite. But they did bite. Shortly after the press conference, Blanco was getting ready to leave the house. My daughter was a psychologist, and um, every day at noon, I would pick her up, and we'd drive home. It was the same route for both of us. Um, on that day, I didn't go, because my son asked, can I borrow your truck? Yes, but you pick up Christy. Yes, I'll pick her up. Washington Valdez writes that Blanco's son, Eduardo, was driving with his friend in downtown Juarez when a pickup with tinted windows pulled alongside and fired several rounds into his mother's truck. Eduardo was struck in the femoral artery. Somehow, he managed to step on the gas and make it to a nearby emergency room. When the doctor discharged him, he said, you're very young, you're going to make many decisions in your life, but the most important one, you've already taken it. That was not stopping to keep driving here. If you had waited for an ambulance, because the femoral bleeds out in seven minutes. Both of the boys survived, but the shooting was never investigated by police. Does Blanco think she may have been the target of the attack? Of course. It was my truck. It was the route I drove. Every afternoon, I would pick up Cristina at that time. Cristina and Eduardo have always been very supportive of me. They've respected me a lot in what I've decided to do. They don't interfere. They, they just give their views. But Cristina 
was the one who told me once, almost crying, we have to do something. We can't live in fear. Yes, you're right. We can live in fear, Cristinita. Blanco and her family left the state of Chihuahua a few weeks after the shooting. She would not set eyes on Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif for another five years. Irene Blanco was the first attorney to be threatened and attacking Juarez, but she wouldn't be the last. The constant fear of reprisal for anyone who spoke out against the conspiracy of silencing Juarez made covering the story of the missing and assassinated girls a complex job for the few reporters willing to investigate these cases. The mothers of the victims, the lawyers, the families of the falsely accused men, the female special prosecutors, and even the forensic aides inside the district attorney's building, all were threatened. Nobody had the right to talk to us journalists. Those who did often paid a heavy price. In early 2001, Teresa Rodriguez writes that Sully Ponce took to the airwaves to announce that with the conviction of Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif and the imprisonment of Los Rebeldes and Los Toltecas, the women of Juarez were no longer in danger. Ponce said that her office had solved nearly 60% of the serial murders that had occurred in the city since she was appointed special prosecutor and that the total number of femicides had fallen sharply over the last year. In very little time, Ponce said, I'll have the pleasure of openly saying that in Ciudad Juarez, there is not one sex crime. Note is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vasquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. 
Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production vans were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinoso Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.